So we're going to um, look at uh, John again today. I know it, it maybe seems like we're just carrying on with John, but actually um, we're at a perfect passage <laughs> the Sunday before Christmas. So we're going to read John chapter 3, verses 11 to 21. Um, I don't know, Mark, have you got that up there? There are Bibles, of course, at the sides, as you know, if you haven't got your own. So this is um, partly a part of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And we, we thought about Nicodemus last week, and we thought about that uh, well-known and, in some respects, slightly hackneyed phrase, you must be born again, and thought about who Nicodemus was, this uh, man who had reason to be confident in terms of his um, Pharisaic background, his position of power, uh, all the reasons why, as a member of the Jewish ruling council, he could feel uh, that he ha was um, someone who had arrived, and not just arrived in the eyes of people, but arrived in the eyes of God. And, and we saw how Jesus gently but firmly and clearly just strips away all Nicodemus's assumptions and foundations and, and leaves the man completely left fielded uh, and confounded because uh, Jesus tells him effectively, not in so many words, but by implication clearly, that none of all of that uh, that he has relied upon and relies upon is what counts, and that actually he really needs to be born again. He needs to start all over, um, and that nothing that he's got or achieved thus far is going to be uh, the, 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 the secret or the way into the kingdom. So actually, just to put this passage in its context, I'm going to start from, uh, from verse 1, but Mark, don't worry about it. We'll, the main readings picks up from verse 11, but just let me read from the beginning of the chapter. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, 
So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Amen. May God bless to our understanding his word. I always have this interesting view when I stand up here facing in this direction and and you're stuck looking at me. But I can see, and especially this time, it's just like business as usual. This might be a Monday or a Thursday or uh, any other ordinary day. The streets are full and uh, there's a, well, not maybe quite a spring in the step, but people are on a mission. They're on a mission to get uh, Christmas sorted. And certainly at this time of Christmas, at this stage in in the whole arc of what's going on, um, the focus is very much on on what I have to do, right? I maybe could have asked that as a as a question at the beginning round the tables. What do you still have to do? But that would just have been stressful, and I wouldn't have wanted people suddenly becoming overwhelmed with all the things they have to do and think, "Oh my goodness, I shouldn't be here." <laughs> but now is the time. I stupidly made the mistake of trying to buy something trying to, quote-unquote, here's a phrase you should never use on the Saturday before, before Christmas, nip into Asda for something quick. <laughs> nipping into the car park and nipping out of the car park were an ordeal in and of themselves. Everybody's focused. And I went in and I was like, there's this <laughs> wall of vegetables as soon as you go into Asda. There's like the parsnip section and the carrot section and the broccoli section. I thought, 20p for broccoli, that's really good. And everybody's on the same mission to get the stuff they need to give the Christmas that they are responsible for giving, either because they're hosting somebody else or they've either going somewhere else and they've said they will take the main course or the dessert or whatever. Everybody's arrangements are... Are, are, are fluid and, and so on. And of course, here in front of us, it's not food shopping that's going on. It's probably Christmas shopping. It's what is uh, that last minute gift or perhaps that first minute gift for some people if they're just getting around to starting. Well, people finished work yesterday or Friday then. For some people, this is core time, right? To get everything bought in the next three days. And so the focus is, have I got? Have I got something for? Have I got enough for? I should maybe just get an extra thing. 
And so the focus is on what we still have to do, perhaps. Well, it is for a lot of people. Of course, the other side of that is that for, for people for whom Christmas is a difficult time or a lonely time, then it just seeks to rub that in. When we look at this passage where Nicodemus has come asking uh, clearly, uh, hedging his bets, a man of importance and significance coming at night so as not to be seen perhaps because he just is trying to find out who Jesus is. But he's interested and he's curious and Jesus confounds him with mysterious answers about being born a second time, which of course, he knows is an impossibility, but it's this good teacher who's done amazing things. And by this stage, John's only recorded the miracle of the turning of water into wine. So we don't know what else John knows that Jesus has done by this stage. But there's enough evidence for Nicodemus to be curious and convinced that he is a, a good teacher at the very least. And Nicodemus wants to be a good teacher, so maybe he's trying to get some tips there's a humility in even going and asking. And yet Jesus, as we saw last week, and I'm not going to go over it all in detail again, but Jesus undoes this man and literally takes him back to the place and the stage where he has to be like a little child in order to receive. He has to be born again in order to accept at the level of the, the, the level of the utmost simplicity, that which he cannot work out for himself. We were having a conversation at our Bible study. We've got a guy's Bible study on Thursday. Sandy was there, and uh, we are having a conversation about just how old Mary was or may have been. Because it wasn't unknown for a girl to get betrothed uh, at the age of 12. And we know that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Girls had their coming of age, age 12, what the Jewish community today mark with a bat mitzvah, and boys have their bar mitzvah, son of the covenant, uh, age 13. And, and that marked their uh, uh, transition from childhood into, into adulthood. And so a girl could be uh, betrothed as young as 12. Now, when Mary was betrothed, there was no knowledge or expectation about Jesus or the responsibility that she would have or anything like that. And in our ears, that sounds shocking, outrageous, and obviously in the world and within the mores that we live with now, probably inappropriate. But of course, life spans were shorter then. If you made it to your upper 40s, that was a reasonable life. So when Anna appears in the temple, who's 84 years old, she is, you know, she's telegraph material. That's, that's a significant age. And so all that to say that even supposing, you know, 12, 13, 14, does it make much difference? Here was someone that we would class, and certainly the law would class in our country, as a child. And here is a child who is being asked to receive a gift which she cannot fathom or understand. Mary was 
troubled at the angel's greeting and wondered what his words, wondered what this greeting might mean. Mary was being asked to say yes to something with only a few sentences of explanation that she would have a child, that the child was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Now, in Aramaic, that would probably make more sense because Yeshua, or Yeshua, was related to the verb for to save. So Jesus' name, like Isaiah and Joshua and Jeshua and Jesus, it's all the same name, just like John and Ian and Ewan and Giovanni and I could, Ivan. Give me some more. There's more, right? Sorry? Jan, thank you. Yes, these are Johan. These are all John. And so Jesus' name meant Savior. And so in Aramaic, it would be, it would be called, he'll be called uh, savior, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what it would sound like. But what else? At what point did Mary realize that the angel wasn't talking about her and Joseph just having a kid? She was betrothed. Her expectation when she got betrothed was that she would marry Joseph. There was no birth control in those days. As soon as you got married, you started having children. And infant mortality was high, so you kept on having children. Partly because there was no birth control, and partly because if 50% of your children made it into adulthood, that was a good outcome. And so Mary's expectation may well have been. I mean, Zechariah, when he was told that he, his wife Elizabeth was going to conceive... He didn't believe it at first. He questioned it and was struck dumb, but they conceived a child. And there's nothing that suggests it was by anything other than by natural means. But at what point, at what point did Mary realize that she was actually having a child, that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her? What does that mean, that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her? And that she was going to find out and discover over the next weeks and months that without any man coming anywhere near her, she was experiencing the signs and the symptoms in her body of pregnancy. And perhaps as a young girl, she might not even have known what to look for. I don't know. How much did she know? But all that to say, here was a child in a world of very little knowledge. As a girl, she would not have received much of an education. And whatever education she got would have been around child rearing and uh, housewifery and domestic tasks and so on. And so she's a young girl about, uh, and probably one of the things that she did know a little bit about would have been looking after children because in that kind of world, you know, it's the big sister or big cuz who gets to look after all the little ones coming afterwards. And you, it's not uncommon to find a 12-year-old with a little trail of uh, a little mini crash that they're responsible for. When I was in Cambodia, I shared this with a group the other day, uh, visiting a project there on the border between Cambodia and Thailand, one of the things that that project does, amongst many other things, is uh, rescue children from child trafficking. And uh, one day we came back from wherever we'd been out in some villages and uh, at the, 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 the restaurant where we had our meals, which was also another part of the project, there was this kid. Now, to me, he looked like he was about 
eight, nine, ten, no more than ten, a little kid. Now, Cambodians are smaller of stature. It's just, they are. And so I thought this was a ten-year-old boy. It turns out he was a fourteen-year-old boy. And he was a 14-year-old boy whose mother had sold him to Thai businessmen across the border uh, for $25 because she'd been told that her son would get uh, a job and a place to stay and all the rest of it. And so this woman, because she was desperate for cash and didn't have any money to feed her children, uh, did what she thought was the best thing for her child, even though in our ears it sounds awful. So she sold this little boy. And so he, of course, got, uh, didn't get a job or a nice place to stay or a family or any of that. He got a mat in a corner of a dirty room with very little food and was put out on the streets as a street beggar every day and was to hand over everything that he made. And so that was his life for a couple of years. And then after that, his mother, who apparently still knew where he was, had had another baby, a little girl. And so she went and found her son, and uh, she said uh, she stayed with her son for 10 days where he was. Uh, no, she didn't actually. She went and she saw her son and she gave the baby to her son and she said, look after your sister. I need to go and uh, do something. I don't know. Uh, I'll be back in 10 days. And of course, she never came back. And so now this 14-year-old boy is looking after his baby sister <laughs> is trying to feed her and change her and what 14-year-old boy knows which way up on a baby? And so the Thai police were suspicious when they saw this kid carrying this baby everywhere and they went and spoke to him and found out the story. And when they found out the story, they took the little boy back across the border to Cambodia where he was from and brought him to the project. And uh, actually, uh, the, the, the baby was taken off to a, a, an orphanage for babies, and the boy was taken off to an orphanage for kids his age. And the next day, apparently, we heard he came down for breakfast, and uh, uh, he recognized, or no, another kid in the dining room or uh, the orphanage recognized him. It turns out this was his brother, and there was a sister in the girls' orphanage next door. So here's this poor woman who has been having all of these children and can't look after any of them, and they're all uh, all over the place. Mary had very little on which to base her experience or her encounter with the angel, very little in terms of understanding of what the implications were going to be. As a 12-year-old girl, she was, of course, drilled in the ways of obedience and respect for her family. And as a 12-year-old girl with whom she had found God's, and she had found favor with God as a 12-year-old girl, it's reasonable to suppose she was a good girl. She was a well-behaved girl. She was an obedient girl in a culture where patriarchy dominated and her dad would have ruled the house. Mary would have done what she was told. And so Mary, the good girl, receives a visit from an angel aged 12 or 13 or 14 at the very most probably, who says things that she doesn't fully grasp or understand, has no immediate sense that this is going to be a now thing, I don't think. There's nothing that tells us, how will this be since I am a virgin? Well, maybe she did understand 
And so she's called to something that she knows very little about. But she's a good girl and she does what she's told. And so she says, I am the Lord's servant. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that God took advantage of a girl's ignorance or innocence or that he took advantage of uh, her on the basis that she didn't know what she was getting into. My point is that Mary found favor with God because she was able to receive and say yes to what God was doing without needing to ask all the questions or get her head around it like Zechariah needed to, which led him to question and doubt and resulted him in being resulted in him being struck dumb for the duration of his wife's pregnancy. Jesus took a little child and had him stand among them and said, Unless you become like a little child. And Jesus spoke to Nicodemus with his Pharisaic understanding of the law and the way God works and what God does and doesn't do. As a member of the ruling council, he had power and status on his side. And Jesus undid him completely and said, Unless you're born again, you haven't a clue. I'm paraphrasing. And then says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. And so Jesus goes on and teases him slightly. You're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things. How so? Aren't you the one who's telling other people and you can't understand what I'm saying to you? I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. I'm putting it, says Jesus, in in images and metaphors of of being born all over again, of of the wind blowing and and the uh, the vulnerability and uncertainty. If If you're in your house and there's a storm force 10 wind coming, there's very little that you can do other than just hope you ride it out. We've all watched tornado videos on YouTube, right? You're either in the path of the tornado or you're not. There's not much you can do other than get out or ride it out or go in the basement or whatever. We can't control, even though we like to think we can. And so let me just get to the point. Because the point is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And yes, by the 25th of December, there will be to some extent, a shift. There will be a shift from the buying and the getting and the procuring and the obtaining and the wrapping and the removing the price tags and the making sure there's gift receipts and if it needs to go and all the things we have to do and there will come a point where we will hopefully receive a gift. And we will receive a gift that is an expression of the love, the regard, the thoughtfulness, the consideration, or maybe just the duty (laughs) of the one who gave it to us. And maybe we'll be so exhausted with everything we've had to do for other people and to get this show on the road and to get the sprouts peeled and to make sure that, you know, somebody's collected or dropped off or whatever, that we will not be able just to hold a gift in our hand and say, somebody loved me enough to do this for me. Because sometimes it's our doing 
and our giving and even our goodness and all our responsibility and our have to that can rob us, certainly it can rob me of just stopping and saying, God loved me enough to give. Receiving gifts can be a challenging business. It can be an awkward business. <gasps> I haven't got one for you. Oh no, that's way more than I gave them. That's way less than I gave them. We think and we react in the language of, of keeping it about the same, right? And the gift of God's grace is that God gives to us a gift that we can never pay Him back for, never match or equal, never offset with good deeds or faithfulness, never return the favor, never buy some kind of equity. And that makes us uncomfortable. Because like Nicodemus, we like a certain amount of control in our lives. And God sets before us today these words. That because he loves the world, he loves the world and let your mind roam through the countries of the world. Iceland to Finland, to Brazil, to Chile, to Fiji, to Azerbaijan, to Kenya, to Iran, to Russia, to the most outlying islands and all the tribes and the weird people and the rich and the poor. Think of the throbbing massive cities like Beijing or Sao Paulo. God so loved the world. He knows his people. He knows the weirdnesses and the diversities. He knows the uniqueness of each and every one that he gave his one and only son. And here's all we have to do to offset the gift. <laughs> it's actually not to offset it, it's just to receive it that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, we're trying to do the best we can, right, at Christmas. And it can be a difficult and a painful time. But the gift of God is that he did not send his son into the world to condemn it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Knowing fully how uh, sinful and how shameful and how much we fall short, God says, whoever believes in the gift 
that God offers and gives is not condemned. That's God's gift to you. No condemnation. No judgment. That's God's gift to you. That you cannot repay or match. And so my challenge to me, and you can do it too if you want, is to see if this Christmas I can just hold in my heart the thought and the realization that I am loved by God. And I know you're sitting there thinking, well, duh. But you know, the journey from here to here can be a very long journey indeed. The journey from being able to say the words and believe that they're true to actually taking the risk and allowing yourself to be undone by the realization that actually, in some small way, the gifts you give are an expression of, of the love that you have for people, and it will be limited, and it will be conditional, and it will be dutiful, and it will be a whole lot of other things. It's a through-the-glass-darkly sort of love. It's a chip off the old block, but only a chip because the love that flows from God to you is vast and overwhelming. Is completely encompassing. It's based on the complete knowledge of who we are and what we're like. And he gives it as a gift to set us free. To set us free from condemnation. And sometimes the worst condemnation comes from ourselves, towards ourselves. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. People refused to come into the light. No, thank you. I'd rather stay in the world where I can run things myself, take control, do my own thing. Because actually, to make yourself that vulnerable to say, Father, I need your love. I need to know your love. I need to know that I am loved by you. It's quite a risky thing to say. Quite a risky thing to believe. Nicodemus was a smart man, an accomplished man, a theologian, an important and influential man. And Jesus said, start over, mate. Be loved instead of trying to be right. Be the recipient of a grace you cannot understand or fathom instead of trying to box God up for all the people. Be undone before the vast and rich mercy of God. Be like Mary, 
a good girl who didn't understand much of what was going on, but opened her heart and her faith and her body that God might completely fill her life then and forever. And going to Christmas in a place of quiet, humble peace that can say aside from all the food and trappings and gifts and whatever there may or may not be that actually what Liz shared with us earlier on of our Christmas card is exactly what I'm talking about. Inns and innkeepers, donkeys, and all the other paraphernalia. Actually, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. For God loved the world so much that he gave. So rest in the gift. Allow yourself to receive it. Don't think in terms of how you repay it. Let yourself be loved. Not in some take yourself to the corner and cuddle yourself sort of way. But in the knowledge that God so loved you that he gave. <laughs>